Last week we began a series, just a three-week series, talking about the very purpose of why we are here as a church, why we exist in this community, why even show up where we are. And, and we really went back and talked about the purposes that God gives us in really in one verse of Scripture. As, as the Pharisees were talking about this whole thing of what's the most important thing we can do with our lives, do we sit around a campfire and talk about stuff? Do we sit around a small group, talk about stuff? Do we sit in church in rows and just talk about stuff and never really apply it to our lives? What are we to do? And, and God, and Jesus said, he said, of all the things you can do, number one, you can love God. There's this vertical dimension. As you look up here on the stage, I don't know how many of you saw this last week. I think most of you did. But, you know, on the stage here, we have this, this, this design. Actually, it's a cross if you look at it, you know, on both sides. Uh, somebody go, oh, there it is. Okay, you'll never miss it again. Okay. But the issue is there's this vertical dimension of the cross, this dimension that points toward God, that love God. But the cross is the perfect also because it has this horizontal dimension as well, this dimension of loving others as well. Because when Jesus said, uh, this is the greatest thing you can do, to love God, he said also there's something along that goes along with it in, in the remainder of that verse, actually in verse 31. He said the second thing you can do along with this, he said, is love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, there is no commandment greater than these, loving God and loving people. And this week and next week, we're going to talk about this second part, this part, this horizontal dimension of love, this dimension that, that has so much to do with what we live our life doing. Because so often it's kind of obscure and kind of harder to understand, how do we love God? But God said, uh, and Jesus said in Scripture very clearly to us, that if you love others, and whatever you do to the least of these, you've done to me. One of the ways you express your love to God, one of the very tangible ways you express your love to God, is through loving other people. Matter of fact, he said, if you don't love others, you can't love God. He said there's this tie-in to these two things. So this morning we're going to be talking about that. This uh, passage in Mark 12, it says, Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. Love God, love people. Now the world puts us all of us into different kind of categories all the time. Rich and poor, uh, short, tall, fat, skinny. I mean, you just name it. We're all kind of categories the world puts us into. But the Bible only puts us in the two categories, people in the two categories, found people and lost people. That's the two categories the Bible puts us into. The Bible, the word found, is we see it so often, is described in multiple ways. The, the word saved, a, a saved person, a born-again person, a converted person, a redeemed person, a justified person, is, is, is in other words for a found person. A, a, a person who has come to a place in their life that where they have recognized their sinful condition before God, they recognize their need for God's forgiveness, the impossibility of going to heaven on their own, and... The basis of uh, uh, they realize the basis of their forgiveness comes to a relationship with God and accepting His plan. Paul even calls himself a found person. Over in Philippians chapter three verse nine, he says that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. And he goes on to talk about what that means. So that's one category of persons that the Bible puts us into that people are found. Sadly enough, that is a category that's in the minority in our world. Found persons. But then there's a second category the Bible talks about, and those are those who were lost. Those who were lost. Now, many times because of, I don't know if it's because of um, political correctness 
our sensitivity, if you're a sensitive person, we often don't like to use the word lost for people. So we've started using other words. There's two or three other words that churches started using. People who are seekers, people who are unchurched, people who are pre-converted. Those are terms that churches use. But those aren't biblical terms. Biblical terms, let me just give you the biblical terms for those who are lost. Uh, the Bible calls those who are lost unsaved. It calls those who were lost under wrath. Now, that's not a good term, right? It, ta- it, calls, uh, it says that people who are lost are wicked, ungodly, on the broad road that leads to destruction, walking in darkness, without hope and without God in this world. Those are descriptions of people who were lost in this world. That, so the Bible tells us that there's two groups of people, only two groups of people in this world, found people and lost people. Now, what I want to talk about today and next week, or this week we're going to talk about loving lost people, but when Jesus said, love God and love your neighbors yourself, there's two groups of people, two ways of loving that we're going to talk about. This week about loving the lost, next week about loving each other. How do we relate to each other, and why is that so important? And we're going to be very specific about what that means in our lives and the way we respond and act toward one another. But this morning I want to talk about the biblically, the attitude that we need to have toward lost people. If you have your Bible this morning, turn with me over to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, this summer we looked at the parables. We're going to kind of highlight a couple of parables that are here this morning. Because in Luke chapter 15, it is really in a real sense the, the um, centerpiece of understanding what lost people are and God's heart for them in Scripture. The word lost is only used 18 times in the New Testament. And only nine of those times it's used to describe the condition of people without Christ. But five of those nine times are found here in Luke chapter 15. So it's really the epitome, the, the, the very centerpiece of understanding the lost people and God's heart for them. Matter of fact, a couple of chapters over in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, it says this. It says, for the Son of Man, Jesus, has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And so he says his mission, his purpose, the reason he came down from heaven, the reason Jesus came was to seek and save that which was lost. That being the case, let me ask you a simple question. Is not our mission to be the same as Jesus's? If we call ourselves followers of Christ... The word Christian means little Christ. And so our mission is the same as as, as Christ's mission. And he says his mission, the reason he has come, is to seek and save that which is lost. So let's look at what uh, the attitude attitude we need to have toward lost people in Luke uh, chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, uh, we, we begin this passage of Scripture, and, and it, say, and it says, uh, uh, the first thing is this, that we find out that lost people are everywhere. The first thing that it talks about is that lost people are everywhere. For it says in Luke 15, 1, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathered around to hear him. Why does it even mention tax collectors? And, why, does it, why does it put tax collectors in a different category than the rest of the sinners? That's what I want to know. Well, the reason in that culture you have to understand is, is if you go back in history, is, is that in that culture there were people who were tax collectors. They were, they were called to be collect taxes for the Roman government. But what they did, and people began to find this out over a period of time, these were their own people, what happened was is they would collect the taxes for the Romans and then add on 2 or 3 or 4 or 5% for themselves. And people didn't really know what the Roman government is, but they kind of found out after a while that what they were doing is they were ripping off their own people. 
And so you can't imagine how much joy that brought people. No, it brought them, you know, these people were the most despised people, tax collectors, and all the rest of us who are sinners are grouped in this other category. Everybody else is in the other category here. But basically, as you looked in the culture, there were these tax collectors and sinners, it says, um, there were people, lost people were everywhere. Um, But the interesting thing is this. We see in Scripture, the lost were flocking to Jesus. They were seeking after him. They, they felt and understood that they needed to be around him. Uh, and, and the reason, and there were several reasons for this, because one of the things is, is, is that when you're lost, you really are looking for something. Uh, have you ever been lost before? Everybody ever been lost before? Will admit you've ever been lost? Uh, guys, and you know, it's, it's all right. Okay, it really is. I will admit it. I admit one time, one time I was lost in my whole life. Uh, the most vivid image, uh, thing that ever happened to me, I, one time a few years ago, probably you know, 15 years ago, when we lived in Virginia, uh, in Roanoke, uh, when people were critically ill and had to go to certain hospitals, you sent them to different locations. For instance, if you had, if you had uh, cancer, you usually went to John Hopkins in Baltimore. If you had uh, heart problems, you went to Duke University. And so those were all in different directions from where we were. But occasionally people in our church, when I was a pastor there, they would go to these hospitals. And the first time, I remember going to John Hopkins. It was about a four and a half hour drive from where I lived. And so one day, uh, this, this young man in our church was going through cancer treatments and as he, he was down at John Hopkins, who has been there for several days and would be there for a couple of months because he was going through bone marrow transplant, all these different things going on with him. I decided to go down to John Hopkins. Well, that was before GPS and before cell phones. Okay. How do you live without those? I don't know. But the reality was, I went down in the middle of the day, it was a nice sunny day, I left early in the morning, got down to Baltimore about the middle of the day, and, and, and if, you, if, if you've ever been to Baltimore, been to John Hopkins, John Hopkins is right in the middle of the city. And you're, you're amazed that it's even, you know, it's, it survives there, because it's, a, it's in a crazy place, and I got totally lost. But as I was lost, it was in the middle of the city in the ghetto, really, in a real sense. It was a terrible place down there to go to. And I didn't want to stop and ask anybody because I was afraid I would die, literally. And so I rode around, lost, looking for John Hopkins for half an hour. Finally, I come up in front of this government building that has this loading zone. So I stop my car, lock all the doors, take my keys, run into the government building, and finally ask him. I was only two blocks from John Hopkins. I'd driven by that place several times. I didn't even know it was there, you know, because it's right in the middle of nowhere. But I was lost. It was, it was not a real good feeling to be lost. Lost people are everywhere, and sometimes they don't even realize they're lost. That's one of the realities. Uh, but, but the thing that we have to understand is this. We need to cultivate and understand and have compassion for what it means to be a lost person. And the only way we can do that is to remember what it means to be lost. You know, for some of us who have been Christians for a long time, the reality is this. Let me just tell you the reality. The reality is when you've been found for a long time, sometimes you forget what it means to be lost. You forget what it feels like to be lost. You don't even understand what the mindset is of a lost person. And so that's the first thing. It's a scary thing. I remember a few years ago, I think it was about three years ago, my wife Vicki, she calls me one night. She was ministering to a family in our community who had lost a, lost a young child. And, and, and the family, one of the other was in a car accident, and one of the other family members were 
Another young child was at the hospital, and so they asked her to come and stay at the hospital while the family was at the funeral home that night and visiting and stuff. And so it was late at night. She didn't realize it was going to be this light. She left about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and about midnight she calls me. And she is like, she's down at St. Francis, and that was back before all the construction, but still St. Francis is a confusing place if you've never been down there, especially at night. And she'd gone into one parking, one entrance to a parking garage and was coming out the other entrance to the parking garage. And she went behind St. Francis back in that neighborhood. 12 o'clock at night by herself, snowing. She calls me and she was lost. She was terrified. I'll tell you that. My wife doesn't mind saying she was terrified at that point. And she was really terrified when this, somebody, she was going slowly down the street. Some guy, she said, I think somebody's following me. And then they bumped her. She said, what do I do? Keep going. (laughs) Don't stop. Worst thing. So anyway, she's still with us this morning. She's all right. Uh, $700 worth of car fixing that cost us, you know, whatever. Um, The thing is, is that, you know, being lost sometimes can be terrifying because you don't know how to get out of the lostness. I mean, I didn't know the roads behind St. Francis well enough when Vicki, I said, what road are you on? She says, let me look. And I, I didn't have a clue what road it was. Now I know what those roads are. I've been here long enough. This was like a few years ago. But I understood that. So there's lost people everywhere. Let me explain to you. There's lost people that are your neighbors. There's lost people that are your friends, that are your family members, that are your coworkers, that go to your school. There are people that are lost. They're everywhere. The second thing this verse says to us about lost people is this. this lost people are searching. It says, in that verse it says, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear him. Lost people are searching. They're looking for something. They don't know what it is. But they're trying to be found, but they're not sure how to get there. See, these lost people, these sinners and tax collectors, they came to Jesus because they were looking for something. You see, one of the problems is that so often is lost people don't know how to articulate their lostness. They don't know how to deal with their lostness. In the 1600s, there was a guy named Pascal. Pascal said a lot of really bright things. He was a really bright guy who lived in the 1600s. He said some things like human beings must be known to be loved. Basically, meaning we need to get to know people to love them. We have to spend time with them. We have to connect with them in some way. He said this, men despise religion because they're afraid it may be true. <laughs> Another thing he said is this. He said it is, better, it is a better bet to believe that God, that, that God exists than not to believe. Why? Because the expected value of believing is always greater than the expected value of not believing. It is inexcusable not to investigate the existence of God. And then probably the one quote you probably think that Pascal said, that you've always heard Pascal said, is this quote. You've probably heard this one before. There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man that cannot be filled by anything but God himself. Pascal actually didn't say that. That was attributed to Pascal, but if you read what he really said, it was much broader. It's like, you know, a whole two paragraphs, and that is a, that is a summation of what he said. Somebody's, oh, that's what he meant. And so that's been attributed to Pascal over the years. But it's a still a good quote. There's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of, of every man that cannot be filled by anything but God himself. The fact is this. Lost people are searching. 
Lost people, they're searching for something they don't know how to find, and they try to fill the void in life with so many things. There's all kinds of studies that have been shown what they're trying to fill the void with. This is one unscientific study that was done by a church, a very large church, to talk about what are lost people, where they try to fill the void with. Let me just go to the next slide. The next slide is this one. There we go. Okay. These are the top five according to a survey that was done at a very large church. A very unscientific, but it kind of gives you the idea. That people try to uh, to fill this void in their lives with all kind of things. Uh, things that this, this, this void that, that's, that's God-shaped. And, and one of the things they try to fill with, many of us try to fill with our hobbies. You know, how, many, how much time do we spend on hobbies? Trying to find happiness in our hobbies. You know, sports. I mean, this week I played golf and I played tennis this week, okay? I spent two, I spent four, three, five hours doing sports this week besides working out, Okay? I mean, that's, that's part of mine. I mean, reading books, uh, uh, doing whatever. I mean, now we have the new, the whole new deal now. The news hobbies are these online games. I'm not talking about the ones that kids play. I'm talking about things like Farmville and, you know, whatever. I don't even know what they are, you know. I get Facebook stuff from people going like, so-and-so's done this, you know or Mafia Wars, or whatever it is. You know, the thing is, is I don't even understand what they are, but obviously a lot of you spend a lot of time doing those things. That's a hobby. We, we, we try to fill up our time and find joy in those type of things. In hobbies. Hobbies is number five. That was number one. Relationships. How many of us try to find our pur- purpose and peace and joy in life through relationships? A relationship? Finding the right person. Uh, you know, being the greatest mom in the world, the greatest dad in the world, you know, uh, doing all these different things. We try to fill up this void in our life, this thing that, of, of being significant in life uh, by relationships in all, in all kinds of ways. Uh, uh, how about, uh, uh, or, or the number three was what, the, what they called the S list. Sex, stuff, substances, uh, legal and illegal, Okay. Uh, success. Those are things that we try to fill up life with to make significance out of, fill up this void in our life and saying, what is it that, that I'm missing? Power. I mean, how many of us in life, you know, just want to have control over a part of our lives? And so we try all kinds of things to get better at what we do so we'll have power. And number one was position. How many of us try to try, climb a ladder in some corporate place or wherever you work or wherever because we want to feel like, okay, I'm doing something worthwhile. We have all these issues in life where we try to fill up. See, lost people are searching. They're searching for something to fill up this void that's in their life. And when they don't fill it up with the right things, they're still searching. And these people came to Jesus as a part of the search that they were looking for. But the third thing that uh, I see in this uh, passage of Scripture uh, that talks about it in Luke chapter 15 is this. When he prefaces the parables he talks about, uh, the first verse says that what we just talked about, but verse 2 says this. Go to the next one. It says, then the Phar- this made the Pharisees, after it says that now tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear him, then it says this. This made the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. You know what this says to me? about the attitude that this is about religious people. Religious people, lost people are a bother to the religious. I hope you're not religious. If you are, we will pray for you. 
Literally, I'm serious, folks, because lost people, these were the re- religious people of that day, Pharisees, teachers, uh, teachers of the law. They were the people that you would consider good church people. They were there all the time. Every time the door, they were like a good Baptist. I grew up Baptist, Southern Baptist. You know, you can't be a better Christian than Southern Baptist, I'm going to tell you. No, you can't be a better, more religious person if you follow all the rules. You were there on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, trading union, uh, whatever else. Anything was happening at church. Being religious uh, in a Southern Baptist my growing up was being at church all the time. I mean, I could be at church five nights a week. And if you weren't there, what's wrong with Brother Bill? You know, it's about being religious. Religious people, the thing, thing is, is lost people are a bother to the religious. See what the attitude was of, of the Pharisees and teachers of the law? The lost people showed up at Jesus, and what did they do? They don't rejoice. No, what they do, they complain. They complain. You see, religion is a man-made, self-styled thing. It's about getting to heaven on our own, doing certain things that we think will earn us favor with God, which the Bible says will never earn us favor with God. Religious stuff is things, there's nothing wrong with doing religious stuff, but the thing is, if that is the purpose of our life, of just simply going to church, that's what I keep telling you. Our purpose at Great Oak is not to get you to come on Sunday mornings and sit in rows and go home and do nothing. Or to go to small groups and sit around like this campfire group over here, you know, and talk about all the cool, you know, have all the coolest Christian gadgets, you know. The greatest book. What book did you read this week? Oh, this is really great. What did it make you do? Not really anything. The issue is, is that God calls us to have an attitude toward religious people. And the problem is so often, uh, you, know, the, you know, you know what the Bible says about re- religious people? This is not a good thing. I, I know you're not going to like this next one, but I'm going to tell you it anyway. And you know, the Bible says that hell will be packed with people who are religious. Matthew 7.21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, religious people, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who say, who do the will of the Father who is in heaven. What's the will of the Father in heaven? That we're not be religious, that we have an intimate, personal relationship with God where we trust God so much that he becomes the center focus of our life. Love God, love people. That's what God's will is for us. That's why we're looking at it right now. You see, religious people want to insulate themselves from the world. They try to push the world aside and say, oh, they're a bother. It's those, those, those lost people that are you know, causing all the problems in the world. Now, Jesus says something else. You see, God loves lost people. That's what Scripture says to us. And, he, and we need to love them as well if we truly are folks who believe and trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So what does Jesus do? The rest of this chapter... In Luke chapter 15, I'm just going to hit some highlights really quickly this morning. Uh, I just want to say three or four things about it because it's hugely important. Uh, Jesus looks at, at religious people and tells these stories of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. It's all about lostness. Let me tell you a couple of things that we can learn from the, character, from the first parable, the parable of the lost sheep. Uh, basically this, the, if you read the story here, basically the, the, the shepherd felt a personal responsibility for the lost sheep. There were 99 sheep he still had, but one was lost. What did he do? Say, oh, that's not a really important sheep. Let's just leave it out there. We got 99 here. No, he felt his personal responsibility. He asked the question, if not me, then who? I'm responsible for that lost sheep, that one lost, because that lost sheep is a person, it's a sheep that counts, but it, it was equated to a person. 
You see, we will never have God's heart for lost people if we don't feel a personal responsibility for, the, for them. Secondly, he felt a sense of urgency because he not only just he didn't say, okay, I'm just going to wait till later. You know, there was no urgency in this group on stage, was there? Lost child, who cares? Let's read the book. He said, this, this, this uh, shepherd felt a sense of urgency. He said, if not now, then when? Because we don't know how long we have. But then most of all, he was compassionate toward the lost sheep. We see that clearly in Scripture. Let me ask you a question, the first of many. Are you moved with compassion toward the lost people in your life? Are you moved with compassion toward the lost people in your life? Are they on your mind? Do you pray about them? Do you talk to them? Do you encourage them? I'll never forget. I'll never forget that after <clears throat> a funeral one time, I, 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 in Virginia, I'll share this before, I was a pastor of a church for 13 years there. It was an older, more traditional church that we were transitioning. We had hundreds and hundreds of people on the church rolls, and, and I did about 300 funerals while I was there. I was really good at doing funerals because I had so much practice. But I'll never forget after one funeral in particular, somebody coming to me, this guy coming to me, and and at the funeral, let me tell you, the funerals I don't like doing, I don't mind doing funerals of believers or people that I know. But the toughest thing is do a funeral for a person who I don't know, and I don't have a clue about who they are and what their relationship was with God. And so when I do that, what I try to do is if I don't know the person, I can't be personal with it. So what I do is I focus on how we could have comfort and strength in the midst of, of this dark time. And I don't try to tell people, I don't give them false hope. I don't say, you know, your loved one is in heaven if I don't know, because I really don't know. And so after one funeral in particular, this guy, it was his father had died. His father had no inclination of ever, you know, having any relationship with God. I didn't really talk about that at all. But he came to me afterwards and looked at me in the eye. This guy said to me this, are you saying that my father who died without Christ is in hell? And I said, after I thought for a moment, I said, I didn't really know your father. I can't comment on that. He looked at me again. He wouldn't give up. He said, are you saying that my father who died without Christ is in hell? And I said, well, you know, God gave me this one. I said, you know, it says in Scripture that only the Lord knows the heart of each one of us. And so I can't know his heart. I can't know the condition of any other person's heart except for mine. But he was persistent. He asked the question the third time. He says, are you saying that my father who died without Christ is in hell? And I'm going, well, he wants a straight answer. I'm going to give it to him, and I'm going to try to do it and speak the truth and love as lovingly as I can, but i got to give him the truth. And I said this to him. I said, I don't know where your father's condition is. I don't know his heart. I didn't know your father. But if your father died without Christ and is in hell, then what he wants more than anything else for you to do is to tell other people that you and he loved about Christ so they won't have to go there when they die. The reason I thought of that was because of a parable that's told just a couple of chapters over in Luke chapter 16, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. 
And you can read that parable, Luke 16, 19 through 31. I don't have time to read it today. But basically it's a story of the agony of what happens and the reality of what happens when a person goes to hell and wants more than anything, more than anything, to go back and tell the people that are, that are behind, that are left behind, not to come here, to trust in Christ. And you can read that story because that story tells a clear thing that, that lost people need our attention because the reality of hell is this, that once that happens, there is no purgatory, I'm sorry, if you came from a Catholic background. Scripture does not teach that. There is only lost and found. And once you leave this place on this earth, you only have this time here to make the choice about what you're gonna, where you're going to be. Scripture says that as clear as can be. The second parable, this parable of the lost coin, simply says this. It means that lost people need your time. Because it says in Luke 15, 8, it says, Or imagine a woman who has ten coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and scour the house, looking in every nook and cranny until she finds it? Do you think that sounds like an all-out search? Took a little effort. Every nook and cranny. She spent some time looking for something that was lost. The purpose of this, this story, the second story that Jesus tells us is this, is that lost people need your time. You can't give them leftovers. They need your time. They need your attention. But a second thing that it says in here as well is this, and the good news is this, that finding lost people brings immense joy because not only in this parable, but in all three parables, it says in verse 9, and when she finds it, you can be sure she'll call her friends and neighbors, celebrate with me, I found my lost coin. And then the parable of the lost sheep in verse 7, it says, count on it, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner's rescued life than over the 99 good people in need of no rescue. I want to tell you this. You know, some of us think so often the Christian living the Christian life is a hard thing, and it's not easy. It's not easy, easy pl- emptying yourself of yourself and giving yourself to God. But let me tell you, the greatest thing that will give you the greatest joy in the Christian life is helping people take their next step towards God. These parables tell us that. I could tell you story after story after story of young Christians who accepted Christ, and after they accepted Christ, they began to share their faith with other people, and they came to me as a youth pastor for several years, come to me young, young kids, you know, 14-year-olds and 15-year-olds and 16-year-olds coming and sharing, Pastor Bill! And then they tell me this story about how they were able to, you know, boldly go where no man has gone before. No, that's Star Trek. Uh, they, they did something they couldn't believe they could do, and they went and shared what they knew. They didn't have anything memorized, and they went and shared, and some friend came to Christ. And man, they were on cloud nine because it's the greatest thing you can do in life. And if you think your Christian life is in the you know, doldrums right now, and you're not, maybe it's because your heart toward lost people is not, needs to be, your, your passion needs to be rekindled. God says the one thing that will give you passion in life, the one thing that will help you to have focus in life is to help people to take a step across the line, to take their next step with God. And then the final parable, the prodigal son, is the most, you know, probably the most well-known parable of all of these. Basically, it tells us about how God loves lost people. It doesn't matter where they've been, what they've done, how awful their past has been. God loves them and will receive them and forgive them. But all these parables tell us this. Lost people are searching, but they're searching for something they don't know how to find. So what's the solution? Well, the great commandment tells us love God, love people. The great commission, Jesus' last words to his disciples as he left this earth, was this. Therefore, because of all this, 
Go. Go. Never in Scripture does Scripture tell lost people to come to church. You know what it tells? It tells believers to go. That is why our purposes as a church is very clear. Love God, love people means that we must go. We must be outward focused in what we do. Because there's lost people out there who are lost without, without a Savior. And they don't know the way. And God has given us the opportunity to share what we do know. And then he says to teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. I said last week one of the things we want to do is to have a more structured process of helping people to know what their next step is in regard to this. That's the part of the new vision for Great Oaks is to be more focused on how we help people once they, we go out and help them to come to Christ, which is the first step. The second step, help them to grow in the way that Christ has commanded them to do. Sometimes in life God gives you things at different times that you never expect. I shared with you a couple of weeks ago about a book that I had read recently, uh, a book that uh, I, I, I put off reading for several weeks, a book that I just, just my wife just, I'll just be honest, she kept irritating me, you know, you know, like a, uh, she, my wife usually doesn't irritate me, okay, but she, and she never had done this before, I didn't understand why, but she knew what we were, t- we were talking about all this stuff about loving God, loving people. And in the midst of this a few months ago, she read this book, and this book was called Same Kind of Different as Me. And and as she read this book, it's a true story about two guys, well, actually about a husband and a wife, Ron and Debbie Hall, and about this uh, uh, wealthy, middle-class, upper-middle-class people in in Dallas-Fort Worth, and and this homeless guy, his name is Denver Moore, who lived, uh, grew up in Louisiana and moved to that area, (laughs) living on the streets. It's about a story of unconditional love. It's a story, it's a story, but more than anything else, it's a story that, when I began to read this book, the first few chapters, I was going, oh, that's interesting. But I got to about chapter 15, chapter 19, real short chapters. And I became so convicted, so overwhelmed, so wrecked that I had to put the book down for a while and just weep before God. I was so ashamed. Because what it was was a picture of what it really means to love people with an unconditional love. It's not just, you know, I'll go Thanksgiving to the homeless shelter and do a meal once a year. Or It was about how we express love on a regular basis to people. It's our true story. I would challenge each one. My, my wife made this bold statement. <laughs> she doesn't usually make bold statements too often, but she made this bold. She said if everybody in our church would read this book and understand it and apply it, our church would not be the same ever again. I've had three or four people who have read it. I had one email last night from another person in the church, a guy who I respect greatly, who's growing in Christ, and he's just, he just, he just loves Christ. And I know he's, he's going back to school to, to learn Bible and all kind of stuff, but he said, Daniel, I was wrecked. He said, man, he said, I began to reevaluate how am I spending my time and my resources. Because, let me tell you, I think God put that book in my life and maybe in the life of this church at this time to help us to give an illustration, a very clear illustration. It's not scripture, okay? But it is a story about, about biblical love in a true way. Now, you, can, you won't find it in bookstores. Nobody can find it. So just order it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. So I'll just tell you that. Don't waste your time, okay, right now, uh, trying to do that. But you can get it there, I'll tell you that as well. The issue is this. God calls us to love people to love others, to love the lost. 
this is a story that we cannot, this is the part of the scripture that we cannot say, oh, this is optional. So let me ask you this question. Are you moved with compassion toward the lost people in your life? The lost people have your attention and your time. And have you experienced the joy of being used by God to help people take their next step towards God? If you can't answer yes to all of these, I would challenge you to ask yourself this question. Why not? Why not? Because this is the very basic, the very fundamental things that God calls us to do. Love God. Love people. And if we don't do that, you know what he says? You know, once again, going back to 1 Corinthians 13, we can have everything else in the world. Without love, we are nothing. We are nothing. That's what Scripture says. Let's examine our love for others. And let us ask God, God, help me to love others the way that you love them, to see others the way that you see them, and to be compassionate toward others the way that you want me to be compassionate. Let me be your hands, your feet, in a world that needs you. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Great Oaks Community Church's weekly podcast. For more series and podcast information, go to greatoakscc.org.